wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Glad tidings we bring and a free download of the Christmas Guide book if you want to go to TV Brain. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Yes, I know. With a voice like that, you can see why I never went into singing, can't you really? In fact, the rabbit has gone and hid under the table. I might have to perform cardiac arrest surgery on him to bring him back to life after that. But never mind. It's Christmas and nothing is going to spoil my mood. Welcome to two Christmas Clydopods. If we have too much material, you'll be hearing this in two separate chunks. One on Christmas Eve and one on New Year's Eve. <laughs> Welcome to the Christmas Eve Clydopod. Starting off our Christmas fun from the 25th of December 1971, here is the Mike Yarwood section from Christmas Night with the Stars. Police are also looking for a man who could be impersonating Mr. Edward Heath, Mr. Harold Wilson, Tommy Cooper or Ken Dodd. They issued this identikit picture. <laughs> he answers to the name of Mike Yarwood and when last seen he was right here. Thank you so much, and good evening and a very Merry Christmas. And it's a great pleasure to be allowed into your homes on Christmas Day, the loveliest day of the year, I think. Uh, a day when everybody relaxes. And I've been thinking about relaxation. I'd have been thinking about how many famous people might relax on Christmas Day. And I've uh, put a few people together, beginning with this gentleman. What a lovely welcome. Thank you, good evening. Nice to see you. To see you? Well, there's two of you anyway. I'm so <laughs> thrilled to be here this evening. It's just out the gear, the Christmas gear. I'll never get handbag and gloves to match. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so nice to be at home doing the game at home on Christmas Day. It's so nice, it really is. I, I can't wait, I really can't wait to introduce you to my first relative on the show, my dear sister. Uh, nice round of applause, my sister. <laughs> Thank you, Angie, dear. Thank you, Angie. Yes. Nice to see you. To see you. Nice. Yes. <laughs> I've done that bet, dear. Don't get carried away. Uh, but here, get over here, lad. We won't we, we, see. I've got to be over here. Now, we're going to play a game here. It's quite simple, dear, really. I'm going to pretend to be well-known people disguised as Father Christmas, and you've got to guess who they are. Yes. Oh, right, we're going to have a ball with this one, I can see. We've got trouble here, right away. Anyway, we, we, you talk amongst yourself while I get this. Oh, yeah, I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm so thrilled. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I had a terrible job talking with his beard on. I had, a terrible, I had a terrible job getting down next door's chimney. They got central eating. <laughs> Well, who was that, dear? I don't know, but I'm so thrilled to be on you. I'm so thrilled. I'll her in the soundproof box now. Listen, dear, I'll make it a bit easier. I'll take the beard off. I'll make it a bit easier for you. I'll do another one for you. Who's this? Friends, I want to thank you and welcome you here. I'll have it in. <laughs> I want to tell you something, friends. We're very thrilled because here on the festive occasion, we're very thrilled to be doing the show for you. <laughs> <clears throat> thank you so much, friends. Thank you so much. And I want to tell you, friends, we want you to be nice to each other in the new year and, be, and help out people across the road and do nice things to each other. 
Even if they don't want to go, help them across the And I think that's a pretty good speech I've just made there. I think I deserve a nice round of applause for that. I really do. How about that? Yeah. Look at that, dear. Frankie Howard. And I'm so close to feel I'm real. I'm so close. All right, dear, all right. Don't get carried away. Well, I'm afraid you didn't do too well, did you, my dear? No, you didn't win. We're very sorry, because we do like people to win. But we have a nice consolation prize, prize, and dear, if you would, please. Thank you, dear. Yes, that's what I like, new faces. Anyway, <laughs> there we are, my love. We've got a lovely... Thank you, Auntie, dear. Thank you. We've got a lovely television set there for you, uh, and we wish you many ha happy hours of, of viewing. Oh, thank you. Watch it now. Well, that a good afternoon, and uh, well done. <laughs> Well, it's very nice to be here. I dare you, Christmas Day. Not a very good opportunity because it's all over the place. It's very nice to be here on Christmas Day. Uh, I've got all my relatives with me. They've uh, come for a bit of plum pudding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they've come from all four corners of a Great Britain. They've come from uh, Halifax to Unslet, Hull, and Holden. And, uh, <laughs> well, we've got to find the turkey here for them to get stuck in two. Well, there's a bit of trouble here, though, you know. Someone the leg, someone the wing, and someone the breath. Well, <laughs> there's only one way to sort it out. I'm sorry I'm late, Mary, but there was a hell of a queue at the co-op. <laughs> you know, the sooner we get into the common market, the better. But I thought you said you didn't want to become one of the sticks. By that, of course, I meant the Liberal Party. <laughs> I wish you'd say what you mean. My dear Mary, if I said what I meant, I'd be one of the one million unemployed. We always try to mention whenever I get the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> what presents did you get? Well, I got some quite interesting presents. Heaven knows I should do unpopular enough. I got a... A very nice sock from Michael Foot. Oh. <laughs> and I got a book token from David Dimbleby. Think about that one. <laughs> oh, and I got a, I got a very nice little teddy. <laughs> of course, the only trouble with this, Mary, is I have to keep my mouth shut while he does all the talking. <laughs> Still, it's got more life in it than the real one. How he'd spend in Christmas. Good evening. May I say what a pleasure it is to be able to talk to you on this festive occasion. It gives me the opportunity to tell you exactly what I've achieved since I became your Prime Minister. As this is Christmas Day, and it is, I give you my word, <laughs> some of you may be some of you may be slightly inebriated. Some of you may be very inebriated. This is why I've chosen this occasion to tell you exactly what I've achieved since I became Prime Minister. Even <laughs> 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 Harold's not as clever as that. <laughs> I think my greatest achievement was to have conducted the London Symphony Orchestra. My predecessor's only claim to having any musical ability was to sing a song with Ina Sharples. <laughs> but what of the future, I hear you ask? Well, we are now nearing the end of 1971. And I promise you that next year will be 1972. I give you my word. <laughs> ah, Hetty, my housekeeper. Hello, dear. 
From the 16th of December 1969, here is Graham Garden, Tim Book Taylor, Graham Chapman and Arthur Lowe on Scylla. Just come along here with me. What's going on? <laughs> Just come along here. What's going on? Tonight, we have a big surprise for you. That was your life, oh. uh, Scylla Black. <laughs> All right, all right, all right, I'll do the talking. You just sit there and giggle. <laughs> Very good. Now, Scylla Black, your story begins when you were born in Liverpool. This came as a great surprise to your parents, who were in Leeds at the time. <laughs> now, when you were a little girl, you spent the summer holidays in the countryside where you stayed on a farm. That's right. Of course it's right. <laughs> Do you recognize this voice? Ah, I'm Ferris here, I'm taken by dinner for a go-away stance Well, that sounds like Farmer Bute, but surely he's not still alive? No, he's not. <laughs> His son, Tom, is, so come in, Tom Bute. <laughs> Well, Tom, you obviously uh, remember Scylla. Tom. Tom. What? 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 Uh, you uh, remember Scylla then, Tom? Oh, I do that. Ah, ever since she was so high. Yeah, she'd come down to Long Mile Bottom, bless her little heart. And I can remember now the sound of her merry childish laughter as she watched me killing the sheep with my bare hand. <laughs> then I'd set her on my knee and I'd sing dirty songs. But this was her favourite. Oh, Auntie Mary had a canary on that leg of a there. What? <laughs> oh, well, we sure and see me chums at nearly sheep killing time. <laughs> Thank nice you. See you again, Tom. Thank right. you, Tom Bude. And now moving straight along, let's meet our next surprise guest. Yes, after all these years, it's Uncle Norman. Of course you haven't. He's my Uncle Norman. Fuck <laughs> off. Now, let's pick up your story where we left off. You were abroad when war broke out. But when you got back to Munich, 
you immediately joined the army. <laughs> there you had a distinguished military career. And do you remember this voice? Well, I, well, I don't sort of talk into this thing, do I? What? Uh, the uh, damnable nonsense you ask me. Was, was, that, was, that, was that all right? Yes, it's your old commanding officer, Major General Frensham Pig. Well, uh, Major General, what do you remember about Silla? Oh, he was a damn fine soldier. Grand sense of initiative and leadership there. Who the hell is that? That's Silla. Bit of a sissy, isn't he? Good God, the man's wearing a frock. Hey, I'm gone a minute. Oh, that's the trouble with the youngsters these days. They should be in the army, learning a career, getting shot, that sort of thing. Pull yourself together, man! Why didn't you go out and kill a few sheep? That's what I'm going to do. Don't the bazooka! Thank you, Major General. But now, when you left the army, Silla, you went into show business, and then came fame, fortune, and plastic surgery. Hello, Oh, it's sir! Yes, it's your old friend and plastic surgeon, Babs Lemoore. Well, uh, tell us, uh, tell us, Babs, did you have any trouble? No. Did you have any uh, trouble with Scylla as a patient? No, Huey, I had no trouble with Scylla, or George as he then was. <laughs> you know what, not to mention anything about that. Shut up, giggle! Uh, giggle! Uh, perhaps you'll uh, tell us how you managed to remodel Scylla's nose. Close peg. Yeah, it's quite simple. One clip, a clothes peg to each nostril. Two, tie the clothes pegs to a lorry. Three, push the lorry off the roof. Whee! Oh, oh God, nasty business. What about, what about the mole? Oh, I shot it. Yes, do, you, uh, do you do a lot of this work? Yes, I've done plastic surgery on Tom Jones, the bachelors, Dusty Springfield, David Hemmings. Oh, and I had enough little bits left over to make Marty Feldman. Thank you. Bad Lamore. And now, Siller, we turn to romance. Do you remember your first childhood sweetheart? Oh, Raymond Eckersley. Yes, Raymond. <laughs> Ten years ago, he emigrated to New Zealand, and you haven't seen him since. Oh, no, I'd wondered what happened to him. Well, New Zealand's a long way away. Ten years is a long time. <laughs> but tonight, surprise, surprise, we've just heard he's been run over by a bus. <laughs> this is the bus. <laughs> well, Silla, that brings us up to date. That was your life, Scylla Black. Oh, thank you very much. For a small fee. You uh, wouldn't like this getting in the Sunday papers now, would you? But that's blackmail. Yes, madam, it is. This is a cunning Eamon Andrews impersonator. And I would like to warn the general public against this menace. So, if you find Eamon Andrews bursting into your home, or find anyone in the street impersonate him, just tip us the week. Eamon Andrews? Yes. Oh! <laughs> Caught you there. Eamon Andrews, I arrest you for impersonating a police officer. 
and our refuge for impersonating Eamon Andrews. We're not all fools in the force, you know. <laughs> Carry on, miss. Thank you, Rosemary. Don't mention it. <laughs> the ATS's answer to Berlin, singing one of his all-time hits. Here he is, Captain Arthur Mannering Lowe. Who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Hitler, if you think we're on the run? We are the boys who will stop your little game. We are the boys who will make you think again. Who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Hitler, if you think old England done? Mr. Brown goes off to town on the 821. He comes home each evening and he's ready with his gun. So who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Hitler, if you think old England's done? Who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Hitler, if you think around the run? We are the girls who will duck your little game. We are the girls who will make you think again. Mr. Brown goes off to town on the 821. He comes home each evening and he's ready with his gun. So who do you think you are kidding, Mr. Hitler? We do love our present continuity on Kaleidoscope's Kaleidopod. And here's the trailer for Basil Brush's Christmas Fantasy, plus the continuity announcement and weather forecast by Keith Best at approximately 12.11pm on the 21st of December 1974. Tomorrow afternoon on BBC One, Basil Brush's Christmas Fantasy. You wish to visit the waxwork land of fairy tale and nursery rhyme. Yeah. And with my magic pipe... I can bring your wish to life. Oh, you coming, Basil? Yeah, I'm coming, Mr. Roy. I mean, Mr. Peter. Give us a toot on your flute. Uh-huh. Ah, ah, ah. Right, Basil. Follow yeah. the pipe. Yeah. Hey. Ah. Hang on. I can't get the uh, carpet boat to start it. Hurry up, Basil. Oh, no, Mr. Roy. Climb up to fall in the peep. I'm not Mr. Roy, I'm the Pied Piper, remember? Oh. And you wish to visit the land of fairy tale and nursery rhyme. Oh yes, the waxwork. Court is a bit spooky in here, isn't it? Not for long. No? Watch this. Oh yes. Oh, look at that! The waxworks are coming to life! Hey! Hey, look at that chopper. What a whopper. Fabio, meet Jack. Oh, now he's just grown the biggest beanstalk in the world. Really? First his thrower will be livid. Basil Brush's Christmas Fantasy, tomorrow afternoon at 3.50 on BBC One. Full details in the Christmas double issue of Radio Times on sale now. In a moment on BBC One Grandstand, first the weather outlook with Keith Best. Good afternoon. The chart behind me is very similar to those of several days past. We have a, a depression moving to the northeast of us moving between us and Iceland, moving northeast, and at the same time we have this front trailing across the country. It's rather brighter weather to the north of the front, but near and to the south of it, then there's more cloud and some rain. This front is moving very slowly southeastward, but it is 
flow, and it's also rather erratic as waves like this one riffle along it. So when we come to look at today's weather, we find that Scotland and Northern Ireland are having the brightest weather. There'll be some sunshine there today, but also a few showers, and some of them, over the highlands mainly, will be fairly heavy, possibly with a clap or two of thunder. Now this brighter weather trying to get across the borders into northernmost counties of England during the afternoon, but over the rest of England and Wales, a good deal of cloud with occasional rain or drizzle, especially in this western part here. And another feature of today's weather, the windiness again, strong winds with possibly gales near these western coasts. But again, temperatures well above the normal for this time of the year. Now this cloudy area tending to move northwards during tonight so that England and Wales during this evening and tonight and also southern Scotland having a good deal of cloud and occasional rain or drizzle. But uh, northern parts of Scotland and Northern Ireland, generally speaking, staying in clearer, showery weather. Temperatures hardly falling at all tonight and again a windy night and very gradually clearer weather coming southwards again. So when we look at the Atlantic chart again, we think that, that front that I was talking about will be lingering around southern or southeastern parts of the country during tomorrow, which means that these parts are likely to have yet another cloudy but mild day. Mild over the whole country, but further north, the cloud more broken, a greater chance of some sunshine, but also some showers in the northwest here. Looks like being another mild but windy day tomorrow. That's all from me at the moment. I apologise for this being slightly over-recorded, but we thought it was worth including it, because they are, after all, mega-heroes. This is an interview with Monty Python from Late Night Liner, on the 18th of December, 1970. Well, stay with us for an exclusive report from the heart of Python Regis. A lineup reporter, Michael Dean, was smuggled into the final recording of the series at great personal risk. So for some unbiased muckraking about the hideous malpractices of Please, Chapman, Idle, Gilliam, Jones and Palin, stay tuned. The present series of Monty Python's Flying Circus ended tonight, and Michael Dean was in the audience to do what he could on our behalf to try to put a stop the sort of bad taste exampled here. Who's going to be spoken to, anyway? John. John. Michael. No, Tim. No, no, no. no, no. After that, Michael. Michael. No, It's not fair. I make a fair enough start with you. Uh, <laughs> remembering that um, the people who are watching us now, as we speak in this interview situation, won't have seen this final show of the series of which you've just done. Yeah. And it included the final sketch, which is probably the most tasteless thing you've ever done, the one about cannibalism, mother-eating. I don't know. Yeah, is it the one yeah. about late night? I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was forgetting that one. Yeah. Eric is the spokesman. <laughs> oh, I'm Eric the spokesman. <laughs> <laughs> no, how far do you think... Just in the audience. Yeah, how, Eric, how far do you think you can push... Combat. How far do you think you can push comedy? I mean, certain things you can't joke about. I mean, you, tonight you joked about leprosy, cancer, Cannibalism, mother eating, insects, is that on? We missed it. Insect, mm. I think oh, we I think it really, really I mean, When you say it like that, it sounds yeah. worse than if it just yeah. kind of happens in the sketch and someone has, says the word. And then people don't think about it beforehand. Yeah. But when you isolate it, like, I'm being serious, sorry. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I was being serious. Fine, don't mind. Oh, well, I'd like to be serious just for a minute. Terry, uh, is, there, is there a boundary you can't cross in comedy? Like a boundary of taste? I mean, I think you've crossed it a couple of times successfully. Well, you've been on. <laughs> in the show. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> he's just rude. Right, he's rude. Mm. No, I think if he thinks funny, and it, uh, I think it transcends most boundaries, actually. I think if it makes me laugh, I, would, uh, I wouldn't say no to anything. <laughs> I don't say <laughs> 
Anyway, uh, I talked to Terry Gilliam, who's very um, you know, articulate. Articulate. American. Uh, yeah. Some of your stuff, perhaps a great deal of it, is rejected. Uh, quite untrue. Not much stolen. No, no, it's not rejected. No, everything. Everything Shopify's gone in, hasn't it? No. I must. I mean, I haven't seen Zero Shorts for a moment. John, I'm talking among yourselves. Monty Python, among other things, is known as the not fully networked show. This means, of course, that it's not seen all, it's not seen nationwide. No, it's quite boring. Well, we're trying to uh, get the show to uh, get it shown out in, uh, in Scotland and in the Midlands. Yes. But as I say, you know, I mean, things go with you, sometimes they don't go with you. Until we get the people up the front. Yeah, that's it. You well, hit the ball first, we can get it in the back of the net. We get it now, your show is seen in Scotland, but a recent Monty Python show. Yeah, no, they cut out the last line of the final sketch of a series. So I still don't know what the payoff was because I saw it in Scotland, you see. Ah, what was the line they cut out? The very last line in one of our recent shows. The word, which was. The word. The word. I didn't want to say it, I you think we ought to say it? No, I don't think we ought to say it. No, I don't think we ought to. It would be funny in the context. Yes. 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 It wouldn't have been funny in the context. It was valid, wasn't it? Yes. Just guessing about that. It's valid. Yeah. 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 One complaint. One complaint. That was one complaint. Tell the story. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not doing it like Hold the story. Go on. Okay. Hold the story. Ah, we had one complaint, and the lady rang up, and uh, I said, oh. "What was your complaint?" And uh, she said, "There was an offensive word at the end of that program," and they said, "What is the word?" Because we need to know it to write it down. Um, yeah. She didn't, wasn't prepared to say what the word was, but she was prepared to spell it out, and it was B U G A R. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> 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 trying to say bulgar. Bulgar. <laughs> yeah, it's all about checked hunger and things. <laughs> are you aware that there are people you offend? And are you aware of who they are? Is there a type of person you offend most of all? Is he? We offend many people. And I'll tell you why. Boring statement number one in one sentence is that most of the people who watch this show are not going to be offended by it. Because most of the people who are going to be offended will switch off after three minutes anyway. Yeah. Yep. So I think that's one of the reasons that I we can yeah. be very naughty. Yeah. You've done 13 shows with this series. Mm. <laughs> 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 but, but Imagine you want scripting things with us. Yeah. Yes, what are they like, really? Are, are they total anarchy or is there some kind of order? I don't know how anything gets done. Mm. Here's your leader. <laughs> The Lovers was a wonderful TV series starring Richard Beckinsale and Paul Wilcox, all of which survives except the all-star comedy carnival mini Christmas insert. That only exists on audio recording held by us that was donated by Ed Doolan, and here it is in its entirety, all eight minutes of it. Now, you feel you couldn't force anything down, Jeffrey? I bet not, Mrs. Buttersby. 
One of my New Year's resolutions was to live to see the New Year in. You didn't mind getting into battle's pajamas, did you? That was my second New Year's resolution. Those roads could were out of this, weren't it? They were lucky. Oh. <laughs> I was just, I was just clearing my larynx. And I saw a new sandwich, Brad. No, thank you, Mrs. Patterson. Not even a rotten one. Oh, and those Brussels sprouts, out of sight. In three minutes flat, creating a new British all-comers record. <laughs> I was just clearing my larynx. How about a nice soft-boiled chucky egg? A what? Eva Bean, Georgie Best. Oh, well, yes, Mrs. Batterby. Oh, well, Not too I much. on the last one when I was helping you make mince pies. Thank you, dear. Great. Oh, Mark, you have just been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize by the British Corset Manufacturers Association. That's nice. Ooh, that turkey was something else. The hippopotamus. <laughs> I was just clearing my eyes. How are you feeling now, Jeffrey? Why, watching other people eat good for flu. Was it recommended by seven out of ten doctors before they were struck off? Jeffrey, please don't be nauseating to my mother. She's had her head in the oven since dawn. <laughs> you should eat something, Jeffrey. Feed a cold to starve a fever. That's what my grandma used to say. She always used to say that. Always. I think that's probably why the granddad turned to Lonnie's dancing. But it, it is a fever, Mrs. Battersby. You said it was flu. And flu. Not double pneumonia. Of course not. Not double. Jeffrey, it's a miniature sniffle. One of the symptoms is appearing to be a sniffle, Belle. The burping fiancés whose minds have gone to eating too many Brussels sprouts. I have never burped in my life. That was the very first thing you did in life. Thank you. It's a funny, dear. Ooh, yummy, yummy, you got shibam powing. <laughs> you didn't take you off then, did you? Small? I think she means yes. I'll take these down, shall I, with my bad leg? <laughs> and bring up the pudding with my bad leg. While you stay here. With my good one, Tarmel, you're a gentleman. Tar, you're not. It's, it's not just a snipple barrel. I've, uh, <clears throat> I've, got, I've got this funny tickle in me, I've got it. <laughs> Honestly, no sooner had Mama quit the boudoir. Pardon? You and your epiglottis, Percy Phil. You don't know where the epiglottis is, do you? I know where yours is. So if it was just a sniffle, your mother would have let me go home. My mother would know about these things. They've all got the home doctor strapped to the instep. She couldn't have let you go home, Jeffy. Then you'd have had no Christmas dinner. And please don't say you didn't anyway. I didn't anyway. <laughs> Honestly, you fiancés with one E. Very logical. Then you're not missing my any extras, are you? Not in the slightest, thank you, Mother. <laughs> one, three, five, seven, oh, little mini one, Heidi. <laughs> seven and a half little lonely hairs. Um, eight. It's like a little oasis on Morgan Beach. <laughs> Do you think you grow another one when you grow up? I'm not well, Belle. If I don't live to see the season out, you can have me record of the World Cup squad singing back home. And tell Roland he can have me David Coleman book of football cliches, ancient and modern. Jeffrey, 
It's beautiful. You've given and a half hairs on the chest, man. You're supposed to be brave. I am. You. Ricky. Brave. I haven't even mentioned the funny buzzing in my ears, Bill. I've got a funny buzzing in my ear, Glenn. Who was it once got the cold sore on his lip and rang up the Citizens Advice Bureau to find out if there was a leper colony in the altering of men? Did Joy pop? Oh, sorry. Ha, ha, ha. Anyway, it was two cold sores. Pardon? I'm fed up. Shall I give you irrefutable proof that it's only a sniffle and what a groovy way to spend Christmas? No, thanks. You're not even talking through your nose. So what? Does it mean anything? Suddenly start now. I've got to do it. Ooh, I'm fed up. <laughs> Beryl? We're not doing anything. <laughs> no, dear, that's a fart. So did you get me more custard on your pudding? Well, it is Christmas. Thank you, dear. I do have a calendar. What I don't have is custard calendar. <laughs> Are we speaking, Beryl? I can't answer that. We're not speaking. You know, it's just possible I might just possibly give you your ring back. Possibly. What for? Talking till you know. Oh, don't say that, Beryl. Never. What? I'm just sitting across to Mrs. Cardio to borrow some custard cider with my dad's leg. <laughs> don't watch back, Mrs. Butterfick. Oh, why not? You've got a bad leg, right? Right. Thank you, dear. Hey, isn't that fantastic? Isn't that just too much? Much too much? You suddenly feel better, yes? Yeah? I'll do now. My mother's just gone out, QED. Medical science astounded by remarkable recovery, says Daily Mirror. Beryl Battersby saw it coming a mile off, says Beryl Battersby. Ah, oh, Beryl, bring your middle toe back. N-O spells no. Well, sometimes, yes. Especially at Christmas. Yuletide greetings, Jeffrey. Seasonal joy, Belle. Hey, you've caught my sniffle. you better get in, Beryl, for medicinal sake. Great. The US Cavalry is alive and well and stationed in Ophium. Oh, Uncle Arthur, Auntie Phoebe, Uncle Walter, Auntie Polly and Tum-Tum Cousin Sydney that slavers. <laughs> All wearing new scarves. And my mum coming out and Mrs. Cowgirl's pretending she's pleased to see them. Oh dear, I do hope she takes that paper out off before twelfth night. She won't. Coming down. For an afternoon with your Auntie Phoebe, I spent three weeks on Barcelona Airport because the hotel wasn't built. And when I got back, I hadn't cancelled the milk. And have you seen me golf, though? I'll bring you up till Christmas, Pud. Merry Christmas, Jeffrey. Merry Christmas, Beryl. Happy New Year. You said that last year, and look what happened. We got engaged. Exactly. <laughs> when I finally managed to get into your bed, all I get a nibble of is Christmas pudding. That's my Jeffrey. Shall I bring you up a custard sandwich instead? That's my Beryl. On Petula and Friends, the 27th of December 1971, this is Alf Garnet. Oh, I want to know. 
Noli. Yeah. In Spanish. Yeah. Well, he's not in Spanish. He's Bath. Yeah, right, Bath, dear. <laughs> Oh, put up with this bloody foreign swarm, love it. All the bloody common market. I mean, what can I do on a continent of Europe we can't do just as well over here? I answer me that. Oh, well, what can I do on a continent of Europe? Just that... held up. Maybe I could tell you. Why, well, anymore with your bloody teeth, you'll get the back of my hand, of course, your face. You will. Not me. There are a lot of things. Put something decent on. Look at you sitting there all bulging yourself. Nobody want to say to yourself. Look at it. Nothing on underneath. There are lots of things they can do better on the continent that we can do here, and that is a fact. What, well, what, one... for instance, Miss Cleverdick? Well, there's, well, there's, there's cooking, for instance, food. Yeah, I'll show you what I mean. You'll learn a hundred new ways of cooking a soul. Forget the lock, just give me toad in the hole. Think of verbal guignol served with style and panache. It'll never take the plate, so bang as a mash. Gruyere cheese. Faggots and peas. Troubles you'll find ripping. What compared to bread and dripping, do me a favour. Let's face it, there's no food in Paris or Rome. The top is good at what we've got at home. Now look, you're just being silly. I've been silly, thanks, oh, Everybody it? knows that French cooking is the best in no, the world. Look, Miss Pants, for your information, French cooking is just a load of cooks. Oh, bang, isn't it? <laughs> French cook it is. All right, all right, let's leave food. What yeah. about... Oh, what about love? God, the same as me all out. Can't watch your mouth out, it's open water. Well, even you have to admit that the best lovers do come from the continent. Don't admit nothing at all, do I? Well, there's Sasha Dell uh, and Marcello Masloiani. And what about Yves Montand? Well, I never liked her anyway. I never had no trouble with the old woman, did I? The silly old moo. I mean, I took her down, Madame Tussauds, you know, down in the Chamber of Horrors down there. Attendant comes up, he says, Oi, mate, is she with you? I said, Yes. I said, That's my missus. He said, Well, keep her moving, will you? We're stock taking. We've got away with us. We've got away with us, us English with the dolls, I'll okay. tell you. Well, you tell me how you go about well, it. I will. When it gets to the right place in the bloody music. <laughs> oh, you meet a bird, you fancy, and you give her the eye. Take her down a path and buy her hot heels and pie. And then you chat her up and tell her she's a bit of all right. And ask her what she's doing for the rest of the night. Da-da-da. Stick a couple of points together. Then after that. After she got a little stroll up once the flat and if she does, you know you're in for a very good night. Yeah. And then Well that was then what, what do you say to her? Well, then you Well, it's very embarrassing in mixed company, isn't it? Well go on, we want to know. Oh, at a suitable juncture, yeah. you know. You up to her and you say, Oi, what about a bit? Oh, that's really terrible. Well, you're talking about terrible facts, I mean, it? that's terrible. You'd never get anywhere on the continent like that. Don't want to get nowhere on the continent. I had a day trip to Boulogne. I wouldn't want to go again. There are little more subtle overs in there. Yeah, all part of it. You eat a loving and settle on the Champs-Élysées. And then you take her to dine at a charming cafe. Where you gaze in her eyes as you talk to that walk. Then you tell her your not mad, is she? Then you sip some champagne and you no longer greet. You hold her so closely as you dance cheek to cheek. And very soon in your room as violin starts to play, you hold her in your arms. Can you say, 
Not as good as Anne Shelton was, though. Sherry, Sherry, she tem, she tell my own. All right, all right, all right. Shut up with all that bloody rabbit. All that cobbler's mean then. Yeah. You mean an exact translation? Yeah. It means, oi, what about a bit, <laughs> Anyway, I've had enough of the bloody frog. He's had enough of the French. Look what happened last time they come over here. 1066. <laughs> oh, blimey, they haven't been here five minutes. They killed our king, didn't they? Fascinated our king. <laughs> our darling Harold. Shot him right through the eye with an arrow, didn't they? Yeah, come to think of it, it might not be a bad idea if they did come back again. <laughs> when we join the common market, what a black day that will be. Feel oh. foreign from the continent of Russell, Tunisia. And all the English would have gone off to live in Rhodesia when we join the common market. You'll have hard days with Tartar. You'll visit Santo Bay, we'll float down the line. The French will visit England, oh, it just be divine. Yeah, they'll all be bathing starfish in Newcastle on time. On, on the day that we're all one, when we join the common market, what a black day that will be. You'll have beards, you'll have Citroens, and we'll all drive on the right. Yeah, cars and cars, not a bleating parking place in sight. When, when we, we join the common market, as soon as we've begun. From the highest hills in Europe to the vales of Lydidi, people all will flock to London, just the smile of his baby. Yeah, and he'll be grinning back through his national health team on the day that we're all one. We'll swap ideas as people go to and fro. Yeah, we'll swap Margaret Thatcher for Bridget Bardo on the day we die the mummies. On the day that we're all Right, of course he's bloody well all right, and I come with a decent voice, eh? Yes, I'll nice. tell you what, oi, do you know old Mother Riley's pram? Here, Harry, just a minute. Do you know old Mother Riley's pram? You say, how did it go? How did, did it go? You push it. Hey, I'll see I'll do the comedy and all. No. no, every little while, my heart is that. do a song at the piano. Well, you go and do a song at the piano. People want to listen to me, don't they? Go on, up it. Every little while. Oi, bring that camera back over here. Come on. Bloody fools, innit? You don't get your hair cut off. From the 25th of December 1969, Dudley Moore and Spike Milligan on With a Little Help from My Friends. Uh, well, I, I don't have a, a license for this. Well, uh, you, you should, you should, you should. Uh, you, you can't do it these days, uh, in a, in a mixed society. You've got to, if you want to throw that to the right man in office, one and two, you write off to your local MP. And, <laughs> and you say, I'm doing a right man in office, you've got to write off. So I'd like you all to write. I mean, you, you wouldn't like him doing your, uh, that act of yours, could you, um, or the, oh, 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 you wouldn't like him doing that now, would you? Uh, can we have a bit of paper? But I have you. Um, it started off, uh, what's in it, Raymond? Uh, yeah, Raymond. Yeah, it's on the piano somewhere. <laughs> yeah, Raymond. Yeah, love, daddy, can we feel it better, daddy? No, no, with the E, with the E. Oh, sorry. Let it be. 
Uh, Chris, your first paragraph here. Um, happy birthday. Anybody told you you're lovely? I'll get this off in the post. Uh, there's another. What? Hold it. I didn't have my ticket. Uh, what? I didn't sign it. All right, then. <laughs> Go on, then. Or should I sign it? Uh, who do you know? <laughs> Silent Princess Margaret. You Remo. terribly well. You terribly well, then. <laughs> you terribly well. Um, you terribly well. <laughs> <laughs> That'll do, then. Right. Yeah, well, we're having trouble down here. What's the matter with you? Doing our best. I mean, he's done this twice already tonight, you know what? <laughs> All right, I'll try and do it. The, the, the geezer who's supposed to do the, the, uh, the link up between Dudley Moore and the, uh, the Blue Minx, the Blue Minx, uh, isn't arrived there. Uh, so uh, I've got to announce it. Where are they? Where are they going to be? Uh, Over there. The Blue, ladies and gentlemen, playing their melting pots. <laughs> There's no Minx. Yellow chinkies. If you lump it all together, well, you got a recipe for a get along scene. Oh, what a beautiful dream! If it could only come true, you know, you know, what we need is a great big melting pot. I'm big enough to take the world and all it's got, I'll keep it stirring. Bye. 
like a melting pot. Big enough, big enough, big enough to take the world and all it's got. Keep it stirring for a hundred years or more. And turn out coffee colored people by the score. The youngest of ten, 
and a tiny little mite. The mother was poor and the baby was thin. Only a skeleton covered in skin. The mother turned round for the soap on the rack. She was but a minute, but when she turned back, the baby was gone and in anguish she cried. Where's my baby? The angel's tunnel. It was Your baby has gone down the plum. Your baby has gone down the plum. The poor little knight was so skinny and slight. He should have been bathed in a jar. Your baby is perfectly happy. Won't be above any more. Your baby has gone down the plug hole. Not lost, but a go.
Based on The Wizard of Oz, the Monday play from the 22nd of December 1980 was called The Scatterbrained Scarecrow of Oz. Here's a section of it. from home. And do you know, I've lost my shoes. Who's there? Haven't we met somewhere before? I don't think so. You look familiar. And you're too familiar. Don't you understand you're not supposed to talk to a sentry when he's on duty? Oh, are you on duty? Of course I am. You think I step up and down like this at home? I don't expect so. It would wear out the carpet. No, well, then. Can you tell me where I am? Isn't it obvious? Well, no, not really. Look around you. What colour is the sky? Well, that's a funny question. Green. What colour is it where you come from? Well, it, it's sometimes blue and sometimes grey. Today it was nearly black. Blue, grey or black? Yes. But never green. That's right. Oh, I do wish you would stop marching. Oh, well. Now, there's only one place where the sky is green. The Emerald City in the Land of Oz. Right. That's where you are. I knew I'd seen you somewhere. You were guarding the gates when I came before. Before? Yes, when I came to see the Wizard of Oz. Four of us came. The Scarecrow. The scarecrow? You know the Scarecrow? Of course. Don't you remember? Yes. Now I come to think hard, I do. You had some strange friends with you, a lion and a man made of tin. That's right, the cowardly lion and the tin woodman. Well, it's very nice to have met you again. And now you must go away and let me go with my job. What is your job? To stop people like you from bothering the ruler of the land of Oz. And who's that? It used to be the wizard, but he sailed away in a hot air balloon. Yes. Now we are ruled by the scarecrow. Oh, of course. The wizard put him in charge when he decided to go back home. The Scarecrow's one of my oldest friends. I must see him. I don't think you'll be lucky. He used to see everybody who called, but just lately he shut himself away in his throne room and refused to meet anybody. Well, will you please tell him that I'm here? It won't do any good. Oh, please. Very well. What's your name? Just tell him it's Dorothy and Toto. Toto? My name is Dorothy, and this is Toto, my pet mouse. I shouldn't leave my post, you know. If the captain of the guard appears, I'll get into terrible trouble. Oh, it won't take a minute. All right. Now I come to think of it, I do remember your mouse. Hello, Toto. I didn't think we'd get to the Palace of Oz so quickly. Last time there was a cyclone, it took days and days. Well, I expect the Scarecrow's forgotten me. He has lots of things on his mind nowadays. I don't expect he'll remember anybody unimportant like me. I've spoken to the great Scarecrow of Oz. Yes? He has graciously consented to grant you an audience. Oh, thank you. Follow me. Majesty, it's very kind of you to agree to see me. 
Dorothy! Can it really be you? Oh, my dear friend, I can hardly believe my eyes. Scarecrow, it is good to see you. I can't tell you how pleased I am to see you. (laughs) How did you get here? Oh, it's a long story. A great wind carried me away above the clouds and dropped me here. Oh, how are you? (laughs) Hey, are you enjoying being the ruler of the Land of Oz? Are you happy? I was until three days ago when a very strange thing happened. Thank you, Guardian. You may go now. Are you sure you wouldn't like me to stay here in case you want anything? I'll send for you if I need you. All right. Just when the conversation was getting interesting. It's very important that nobody else should hear. Are you listening, Dorothy? Yes. Good. Well, when we met before and went to see the Wizard of Oz, do you remember what he gave me? Of course I do. You wanted a brain so that you would be clever, and he gave you one. It was a little pincushion full of pins and needles. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> when he put it inside my hat, oh, it made me feel very sharp. <laughs> Later on, when he decided to sail away in his balloon, he said that I was the cleverest man in the whole of Oz and made me the ruler of the Emerald City. I remember. Everybody was pleased. Yeah, right. People gave me this crown and I felt very proud. I didn't want my new brains to get rusty, so I used to polish them every day. And I tried to make the land of Oz a happy place for everybody. But now I... What's happened, Scarecrow? Are you sure that nobody's listening? Come come closer. I've lost them. But that's impossible. I often lose things, I know, but you can't have lost your brains. Look, when I take my crown off, you can see for yourself. Empty. I'm brainless again. Oh, never mind, Scarecrow. I liked you before you had any brains, so it doesn't make any difference. But I must have brains if I'm to be a wise ruler. Who could have taken them? I think it was a witch. I didn't think there were any witches left in Oz. Well, there aren't, except the Witch of the North. Oh, but surely she's a good witch. The Witch of the North used to be good, but she became jealous of Glinda, the good witch who helps everybody, and she tried to put a spell on her. It went wrong and turned the Witch of the North into somebody evil. Now she's even uglier than the wicked witches who used to rule this land. I'm sure she's stolen my brains. What would she want them for? Well, no. The spell, maybe. We must find her. Where does she live? In a castle in the Mountains of Darkness, which lie to the north of Oz. Then we must go there at once. Oh, I know you're very brave, but it is a long way to the witch's castle, and she has evil powers. It'll make the journey dangerous. It's a risk that we'll have to take. Oh, but I wish that we had somebody strong to go with us. Oh, I have an idea. (laughs) Why don't we go and ask our friend the lion to help? Maybe he'll come. He's the most courageous beast in the forest. Oh, that's a good idea. (laughs) And I'd like to see the lion again. Oh, that's settled then. Are we ready? Yes. Put your crown on. All right. Yeah, but I feel a fraud. Rulers ought to have brains. Well, most of them haven't, so I shouldn't let it worry you. Now, who says that Father Christmas doesn't exist? Here he is, 9th of December 1963, giving an unbroadcast interview to the BBC. Uh, Now, Mr Hensley, I shan't use the questions on the air. My voice will be cut out, so don't worry about what I say. Um, As Father Christmas in in a big London store, what what do you have to do? Well, we walk around and um, attire as Father Christmas, of course, and the children come up to us and ask us what they want for Christmas, and we find out what their name is, and um, then we say, well, they're a very good 
child will bring it for them for Christmas. And do you actually give away anything yourself? No, we don't here at all. No, we don't. We don't do that sort of thing. But um, if the parents like to buy some small toy um, and discreetly give it to us, then we, on their behalf, we give it to the children. Yes. You say we, uh, I gather there are more than one Father Christmas. There are then. two here, so that the store is covered right from opening time until closing time. Which is from when to when? From 9 o'clock at the moment, it's 9 o'clock until 6, hmm. and uh, 1 o'clock on Saturdays. How did you begin as a professional Father Christmas? Well, I started really in the ordinary sort of way, as a, in, uh, to parties and that sort of thing, and they asked me to do it for a joke as Father Christmas which I did, and subsequently the offer came along to um, be a sort of professional Father Christmas in this store, and uh, I thought I'd, li I'd like to try it, and this is my fourth year. What sort of person do the children expect Father Christmas to be? Well, I think he's pretty universal, you know. They, they sort of, uh, they've all got a pretty good conception of Father Christmas with the white beard and the red hood and that sort of thing. And uh, no matter where they come from, as they do here, from all over the world, and um, they all know what Father Christmas should look like and what they expect him to be. Uh, are there any uh, changes from last year in the sort of things children are asking Father Christmas for? Not generally. I mean, the boys usually ask for guns, trains or cars, whilst the girls still like dolls, principally like the talk talking dolls, of course, and dolls' houses. Um, and, of course, one or two of the... Uh, more with its generation, they, they're asking for long playing rec records of the Beatles. Um, as Father Christmas, have you ever been recognised by any of your None at all, no. I've had numbers of uh, people I know quite well, children, uh, including nephews and nieces, and they, they don't recognise me at all. Um, can you tell me a, an amusing or an embarrassing experience you've had as Father Christmas? Do you well, ever have any? Not terribly, no. I mean, one has to be... Uh, uh, quick on the, on the ball, really. They do ask some children for things which obviously they're not going to get. You can always get one's cue from the parents. Um, for instance, if they ask for something outrageous like a uh, 165-pound car, um, and, and the, 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 the parent looks aghast, of course, at this request, then I, I, I say, well, uh, I think it's a bit large to come down your chimney. We'll have to get something a bit smaller. And uh, correspondingly, of course, if the, if the child is going to get a toy he or she asked for, then you, the parent usually says, well, I think, will you put that down, Father Christmas, and make a note of it? So obviously the child's going to get his toy. But what is the most difficult part of the job? Well, I think one has to have a lot of patience because uh, particularly here on Saturday mornings, we get absolutely invaded with children and... Um, uh, they're liable to get a bit out of hand. Sometimes they push and get out of turn, and uh, one requires a certain amount of patience to deal with that sort of thing. But otherwise, um, it's um, a very interesting job, of course. Um, one of the features here in this store is that annually they do entertain some blind children, which is very nice. They give them a tea here, and Father Christmas goes and meets them all, and there again, although they're blind, they, they've got an idea of what Father Christmas is like. They like to feel the beard and the whiskers and that sort of thing and um, give you their requests for Christmas. Then subsequently, after tea, um, they come down in the store when the store is closed and uh, they're allowed to play on 
the various toys, you know, rides in the cars and so forth. And um, then they have, they all sit around and Father Christmas gives them a present each and they're all called out by name and of course they have a whale of a time. It's the most satisfying thing really. Mm. Has anybody ever tried to pull your beard off? Oh yes, they do. one or two come up and say, Father Christmas, I'm going to pull your beard. And I said, I say, well, no, what would you do if I started to pull your hair? And they say, well, we shouldn't like it. I say, well, I shan't like it either. Um, you've been uh, Father Christmas for the last four years here. Yeah. Um, is there, is there, has there been any decline in his popularity? Or, uh, oh, I don't think so. I, I think it, it's, it's stronger than ever, really, the, the appeal of Father Christmas. As I say, they come from all parts here, Americans and uh, Australians, New Zealanders, and they all want the main objective when they come in the store is to see Father Christmas and have a word with him, you know. Uh, you get one or two shy ones occasionally. Oh, oh they'll shake hands with Father Christmas, but you can't get a word out of them, and the parents are rather upset about this because they say, well, all the way up in the bus or the train, they've been talking about Father Christmas and what they're going to say to him when they meet him. And then they get all shy, you know, and embarrassed about it. But it's great fun, nevertheless. Here's a musical interlude from the music of John Barry from Christmas 1972. Tonight we're going to listen to the music of John Barry. We're going to see some of the scenes from films that have inspired that music. And as they say, in our native Yorkshire, we're going to meet the lad himself. He's been variously described on LP sleeves as, and I quote, looking like a Roman emperor on a crash diet, a youthful Britisher, and invisible most of the time. His age would be quoted as being 35, 27, 36. This, apart from their qualification as a somewhat small Mr. Universe contestant, also showed just how little is known about him. Well, we hope to rectify that with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, John Barry, his music.
Perdue theme course from the film Born Free. Later we'll be hearing music from other films that have become synonymous with the John Barry sound in that cowboy, Zulu, Goldfinger. It's a pretty long and impressive list. Well, that's the commercial. Let me the product, John Barry. Good evening, Marshall. Good evening, Don. Listen, you've written a, a lot of different kinds of film score, different kinds of movies. Is there any one kind of movie that's more difficult to write to score for than another? Well, I think, broadly speaking, they get into two categories. One where the scenes are conceived possibly musically by the director. As an example, in The Knack, for instance, Dick Lester, I'm sure, conceived many of the scenes uh, with music in mind. Where's the stopping point? I mean, I, I can see, you know, there's some who don't try to write occasionally. I can see where I get my ideas from some system in Jack on a bus. I mean, I'll have maybe a good little article or whatever. But when your inspiration comes from writing a, um, a theme from the movie, I mean, you literally, when you see that piece of, of raw film, did the tune come into your mind? No, not the tune. <coughs> much of the function. Um, I think Michael Ayrton wrote a marvellous book called The Rudiments of Paradise about uh, art and he said about his appreciation of art, it was a kind of nervous reaction towards visual phenomena. Like Daniel's the night for Luke, but it really is that first time you see the picture, a very uh, positive reaction. I think the first reaction towards the picture is, is is the one that I treasure most of all. Yes, and as you might change it radically, right. but the seeds are there, you have yeah. You mentioned there a film that you enjoyed writing for, which was going to have a bit of loose form, and that was The Knack. Right. Yeah, and uh, we just happened to have next to Spare, of course, in this program, sitting next to us, Michael Crawford, who was what you were 12, weren't you, Michael, when you did The Knack? On the 13, as you call it, <laughs> with the same teeth. Yeah, yeah, no, that was only shoe side. But it, it was a Extraordinary film, though, because I remember when it first came out that it, it got critical acclaim, but no kind of, of popular, uh, no kind of popular. It was at the beginning of all the sort of new wave films. Tom Jones had just been made uh, by the same company, Woodfall, and this was the second, I think, of, uh, we won the Cannes Film Festival award, and it was something very, very new for the public, which was very hard to take at the time. Mm. I, I would imagine the ruling class is now for certain members of the public to take at the moment, but mm. nevertheless, um, one can have one's own feeling about it. I think it's a brilliant film. Mm. And I thought at that time, when I saw the night, finally, not when I was making it, mm. now, you can't really tell, because you're too involved with what you're doing. Uh, that it was a brilliant film. Mm. But, 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 but when you when you say about it's a very loose sort of film, in fact, I mean it may appear to be a very loose film, but it, it, the timing of films that look as though they're ad lib is quite extraordinary. Mm. Lester really works to a like a Swiss watch the timing of all comedy. Yes, yeah. I know. But one would feel that Lester down the really good music that yes. But what about when you saw the finished product and the music was on there? I mean, how much did it do for you that added dimension, which of course you've not seen until the film was finished? It just made you tingle. It was everything that you imagined when you were making it. Music by Candlelight for Christmas Eve, 24th of December 1963. Time, 8.35. And this is where we welcome listeners to the general overseas service of the BBC to Music by Candlelight, a programme of continuous music for Christmas Eve 
played by a section of BBC Concert Orchestra, Nida Arthur Levins, conducted by John Hollingsworth, with Patricia Clark, soprano, and the Ambrosian Singers, directed by John McCarthy. I do love Bob Monkhouse. His collection is fantastic and he was a wonderful man. And here is the happy days of Bob Monkhouse from the 26th of December 1981. This is Brotherhood of Man. ...of November in 1492. It's been said, I've heard it said, Christopher Columbus discovered tobacco. It wasn't Sir Walter Raleigh. He was just the first to put coupons in the packets. <laughs> in fact, it was discovered by a Frenchman called Jean Nicot, which is why we call it nicotine. Oh, cigarettes are bad for you. I know they're bad for me. I know they're bad for me really bad. I, ever since my wife came home from a week at her mother's and she found one with lipstick on it. <laughs> I read all the articles, we all do, don't we? There was one in the paper last week and it made me so nervous I've gone up to five packets a day. Oh. <laughs> I smoked two and coughed three. But the article, the article said, half the women in Britain smoke after making love. I've never noticed that. I really haven't. <laughs> The half I've been with don't even get warm. <laughs> My wife never has a cigarette after we make love. She says one drag is enough. <laughs> oh, right. uh, did I say I was a great lover? I'm not a great lover. I know, I caught a peeping Tom booing me. Only thrills I get these days are self-inflicted love bites. <laughs> well, she's been angry with me. Just ever happened to you, gentlemen? You come home after a hard day, you walk in the house, your wife isn't talking to you, and you don't know why. You know, maybe she remembers uh, from four years ago there's something to hate you for, but you don't know what it is. I've got a friend, as soon as he wakes up in the morning, he says, sorry, that covers him for the whole day. <laughs> And it's not that she's angry. She's not actually angry, because she... I, I know my wife very well. She doesn't get angry. But I know this about her. When she doesn't say something, it's because she wants me to notice what it is without her telling me. You know what I mean? So now I have to start the treasure hunt. First of all, I check her hair colour to make sure it's the same as when I left in the morning. <laughs> I carry swatches. <laughs> then, 
I go through the clothes cupboards to make sure no new shipments have arrived that day. Then I check the address, because maybe she moved while I was gone. <laughs> and then I couldn't guess what this was, uh, this last week. I couldn't guess what it was for the life of me. And she finally, she said, you didn't even notice, she said. You didn't even notice I've stopped smoking. I didn't notice when she started. I didn't. <laughs> Smoking's a very difficult habit to break. Uh, you've got to have a substitute. I found my wife running behind a bus inhaling the fumes. <laughs> Can you imagine though, what things were like when nobody had tobacco? Right back, way back before we had any tobacco at all, just people walking around with filters in their mouths. And, <laughs> and they try to sell us them. They can't, they're not allowed to do it on television, right? They're not allowed to do overt advertising of that kind, not for cigarettes. But they can do it in the cinema. You, they give you an idea, if you smoke a certain brand, you can do anything. You can make love to film stars and you can walk through cool green waterfalls with a gorgeous girl, right? And ride a horse. And, they, they, they make out you can fly. Of course, it's a little difficult to get that kind of cigarette. <laughs> I'll ask Max Harris and the boys, they should know. Hey, I can cheer you up, guys. Do you know that smoking marijuana was not against the law uh, when Britain's first official police force was formed? That was on the 29th of September in 1829, and the men were called Bobbies. That was after Bobby Peel, their founder. Must have been awful in those days, trying to make a getaway on a penny-farthing bike and getting caught by the peelers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, unless they're meeting Brotherhood of Man, in which case they say, hello, 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 and they whip out their whistles and they play Chanson d'Amour. Chanson, chanson, d'amour. 
What can we say? A little bit of help there from uh, Bob and Friends, I should say. Oh, and that comes from our new double album. And uh, also does this next song. It's uh, a song written by Dave Townsend, and it's called Miss Unite. Many times I can tell you times when innocence I trade for company and children saw me crying. I thought I'd had my share of Miss you now. 
Misunites, accompanied by Max Harris and his magnificent band. One on piano, one on bass, two on percussion, ten on brass, all fourteen on probation. <laughs> and twenty years earlier, here's Dennis Goodwin and Bob Monkhouse doing a Christmas extract from London Lights on the 24th of December 1961. Thank you very much, everyone. We think that Huey is the end, too. Yeah, but the other end. <laughs> this is uh, Bob, ladies this and gentlemen. This is Dennis. And this is gentlemen. Christmas Eve. Ladies and gentlemen, my birthday, you know, Bob. Your birthday? Yes, I was born on December the 24th. Why? I wanted to be home for Christmas. Oh, I see. <laughs> Uh, actually, I'd like to own a department store at this time of the year. Yes, so would I, Dennis. That'd be so. I did some shopping at a store last week, and it was so crowded. I mean, really packed. One woman picked up a corset, another woman tried it on, another woman paid for it, the sales girl wrapped it up, and I wore it home. <laughs> I've got a suggestion. It's about time you took it off. <laughs> yeah, it shows. <laughs> but, you know, I've got a great present for my wife. She's crazy about antiques. She collects old English mugs. <laughs> That's obvious. <laughs> From Wallam Green. You know, not only the... <laughs> not only are the stores crowded, De Dennis, but what about the buses? Have you been on a bus lately? Mm, they I are so... It's a, I got on a bus the other day. It's the first time I've ever seen people standing on people who were sitting on standing people. <laughs> Should have been on my bus yesterday. You know, it was packed. It was so packed. Then suddenly a lady with a fur coat bent over to tie her shoelace just as we came to a bus stop. What happened? It's now the only bus in London with a rug on the floor. <laughs> I hope you got me a decent present this year, Dennis. I see. Well, I'll tell you, Bob, I've been living opposite you for six years, and I've noticed you've got no TV aerial on your roof. That means you've got no television set, and that's where I got the idea for your gift. Oh, Dennis, you don't mean... Yes, here's a telescope, and I'll take my curtains down. <laughs> well... Somebody's trying. Yes, I know. <laughs> I tried to buy you the thing you need the most, Dennis. I really did, but I couldn't find any place that sells talent. <laughs> You can't dampen my spirits today, I'm sorry. In fact, here's a little Christmas Eve present for you. An incense burner and a mirror. An incense burner and a mirror? What do I do with the incense burner? You burn a little stinker in it. Oh, where, where, where can I find a little stinker? That's where the mirror comes in. <laughs> of course, Christmas is the time of the year when we all have to remember the well-known phrase, Love thy neighbor. Love thy neighbor. I remember that the whole year round. Why is that? <laughs> I live next door to Diana Dawes. <laughs> Tell me, is that the house with the big balcony? We, yeah, yeah, that's the one, Dennis. And there's a big 20-foot wall all around a it. 20-foot wall? That's unusual. Yes, I can't get over it. <laughs> you know, Bob, I've often wondered what animals think about at Christmas. What animals think about? Mm. Well, let's find out. Let's listen to two sheep talking. What do you mean, moo? I'm taking up a foreign language. <laughs> we take you now to one of Britain's leading rest homes. Doctor, doctor, my husband thinks he's a washing machine. I see. All day long, he rolls his head round and round and back and forth 
and soap and water keeps coming out of his ear hole. <laughs> and you want me to cure him? No, I want you to mend him. He's not getting the wash clean. Oh. <laughs> and now, as Bottomless tomorrow, we bring you the Monkhouse Goodwin headline news service. Flash, man completes his 50th year of driving in London. And he still can't find a parking space. Flash! Flash, government determined to solve egg shortage. All night sittings in Parliament. <laughs> Flash! Now listen, who are you calling Flash? This is a pretty smart outfit. I put the first deposit on this suit today. Yes, yeah, so I see. A scrambled egg, wasn't it? <laughs> You'll be sorry you spoke to me like that one of these days. I'm going to wind up at the top of the tree. Now, now why's that, Huey? Dad's in the ladder business. <laughs> in the ladder business. I can't help laughing when I see a joke. <laughs> you must kill yourself when you're shaving. <laughs> Dennis, we mustn't be rude to Huey Green. Remember what we were saying before? Love thy neighbor. Oh, love thy neighbor, love Bob. Him. That's an idea, and I really believe in it. Now, why is that, Huey? I live next door to Diana Dawes. Um, no, no, just a minute. Uh, Huey, we've already done that joke, you know. What joke? I, I really do live next door to Diana Dawes. You really do? Oh, yes. And it's true, she really has got the 20-foot wall around her house. And what are you looking so happy about? Because Dad really is in the ladder business. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not Huey's fault, ladies and gentlemen. When he was born, they kept the hot water and threw the baby away. Drunks talking. Hello, Charlie. Where have you been the last six months? I got married. Oh, that's good. Not that good. She's very ugly. Oh, that's bad. Not that bad. She's very rich. Oh, that's good. Not that good. She's very stingy. Oh, that's bad. Not that bad. She bought me a new house. Oh, that's good. Not that good. It burned down. Oh, that's bad. Not that bad. <laughs> she was in it. <laughs> Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Son of Cliche on BBC Radio 4. We're doing some spoofs at Christmas 1984. On the 29th of December 1984, here's Chris Barry, Nick Wilton, Nick Maloney doing Indiana Jones Goes to the Dentist, written by Rob Grant and Doug Naylor. The hero is back. Now Indiana Jones bursts onto your radio sets. You thrill to raiders. You chill the Temple of Doom. Now see him kill even more foreign people in... Indiana Jones goes to the dentist. Uh, yes, Mr. Jones, you have an appointment at 11.30 with Mr. Pullen. Uh, just go straight through. What are? <laughs> His name? Dr. Jones. Shut up, kid. Just go through the door. Whoa! Look out, it's a crib! Ah! Hang on, kid. I'm going to turn my whip into a helicopter. Whoa! Oh, thank God. We are safe now. Oh, look out, kid. A Messerschmitt. Ah! <laughs> Hang on, kids. Hang on. We're going into a waterfall. Oh. 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 Indy, I cannot swim. It doesn't matter, kid. The crocodiles are going to eat us anyway. <laughs> oh. When oh. you killed all the clocks, what are you going to do about the natives with the poison dart guts? Oh, shit. Ah. 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 Well, we killed all the natives, the crocodiles, the Germans. I guess that only leaves the flying snakes. Oh, wouldn't you know it? Quick here! This way, let's crawl through this incredibly thin abyss. Hey, Indy, what are these disgusting, catchy things we're stepping on? Oh, my God. Rice Krispies. <laughs> I hate Rice Krispies. Forget the Rice Krispies, Indy. Oh. We're about to be crushed by this great big steel ball. Right, quick, Shorty, through this door!
Ah, Mr. Jones, two fillings and a polish, wasn't it? <laughs> Don't miss Indiana Jones Goes to the Dentist. Coming soon to your radio set. Dave Hollands, Space Cadet. This is stellar trader Dave Hollands calling Earthcom 7B to 7. I'm six trillion years from Earth. I was supposed to spend the journey in suspended animation, but I don't know, I just couldn't get to sleep. <laughs> I'm circling a class three planet which has three moons. One is volcanic, one is gas. And the other moon is wearing an Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> Hap, can you give me a bioscan on that moon? Certainly, Dave. It is not, in fact, a moon. It's an enormous fat man floating in space. <laughs> is he alive? Yes, Dave. You see, the planet below has inverted gravity. You mean things fall upwards? Precisely, Dave. Can't be much fun, Shrove Tuesday. <laughs> Goodbye, pancakes. <laughs> they don't toss pancakes, Dave. They bounce them. But if everything goes up, how do the people stay down there? Over the centuries, the Zygons have evolved feet made of Velcro. <laughs> so in short, Hab, that guy who's the size of a moon ate so much he got ripped up into orbit. But what about the Hawaiian shirt? Why is he wearing it outside his trousers? Because, Dave, he believes it makes him look slimmer. Can you set up a link with him, Hab? Tell him we're the little spaceship orbiting his waistline. He says he's been up there three years now, Dave. He travels between the moons, propelling himself by burping and breaking wind. Oh, boy. I wouldn't like to be in this star zone when he does a body belch, man. At the moment, Dave, he's stranded. He's completely mined all the pinto beans off both moons. That poor fat guy is stuck out there in that stupid shirt. Can't anybody help him? He can never return to the planet's surface. No one can help him. Wait, Dave. Secure yourself shockwave approaching. Give me Viddy, look, look, there's another moon now. This moon's wearing a pink smock and yellow slacks. It's his wife, Dave. She spent the last three years eating so she could join him in orbit. What's that she's got with her? It's a giant bag of pinto beans. Look, they're holding hands. Wow, she must be pretty crazy about him. What a love story. There they go burping their way into the sunset. I don't... I don't think I've ever seen anything so beautiful in all my life. What do you say, Hap? I'd just like a second to myself, please, Dave. Sure, Hab. And when you've got yourself together, let's get out of here. Okay, Dave. Dave Hollins, Space Cadet. Thank you.
The critics on BBC Radio 1959 reviewed a pantomime called Aladdin from the Coliseum featuring Bob Monkhouse. This is their review from the 27th of December 59. This is the BBC Home Service presenting The Critics. They will discuss The Innocent Eye, an exhibition of paintings at the Crane Calman Gallery, Brompton Road. The film On the Beach at the Leicester Square Theatre. The pantomime Aladdin at the Coliseum. The radio series Today with special reference to the programme broadcast on Monday the 21st of December in the Home Service. And the book, The Lamp of Beauty, Writings on Art by John Ruskin. The chairman is Philip Hope Wallace, who opened the discussion. Much more frivolous, the pantomime Aladdin at the Coliseum. J.W. Lambert, please. We all live under a shadow, but we are entitled to amuse ourselves at the same time. Pantomime and so on. Well, I should say that this handsome show marks another stage in pantomime's gradual change into a sort of junior musical. And I do hope that nobody will expect me to de deplore the decline of the good old pantomime tradition. After all, pantomime's been changing throughout its 2,000-year history. And anyway, some of its recent accretions, such as the principal boy, a whacking great woman in tights, and a sprinkling of mildly dirty jokes seem to me things we're better off without. Aladdin does, unfortunately, at the beginning anyway, keep some off-white jokes. But then, to make up, it rightly also keeps its dame, the widow Twanky, of course, played with spirit by Ronald China. And instead of a principal boy, it has an agreeable young comedian, Bob Monkhouse. Now, if these two aren't as funny as they might be, the blame must be laid partly on the poorish book, but more on the producer, Robert Helpman, who seems to show no feeling for knockabout rhythms. And then, although the tunes and lyrics are by Cole Porter, they're very reminiscent of himself and Gilbert Sullivan, for instance. Ah, you say to yourself, I hear you. Here we go, the grumbles pile up. But no, for me, there's much more to enjoy and praise than to cattle at in this Aladdin. Mr. Helpman makes amends with some crowded but elegant choreography, happily led by Anne Heaton, and Ronald China's solo gyrations between a copper, I mean the thing you wash clothes in, a tap and an iron, had the whole audience shouting its head off. And didn't you like Jesse Caron's contortionist slave of the ring, who so unnervingly conversed while more than doubled up? But above all, there were Luden St. Hill's sets and costumes, for a palace and a square and baths and golden caverns, for a garden of jeweled fruit and an icy paradise. And very clearly, he's judged precisely the degree of garishness we need. Didn't you think these spinning scenes were gay and delightful? Governor Hansel Johnson. I think this must be the prettiest pantomime that's ever been seen at all. One gorgeous scene melts into another gorgeous scene. There's always something for the eye, always moving, always pretty. And what I felt about it, I thought, well, here's Mr. St. Hill's sets, and this is what suits him down to the ground. Because I've admired his sets before at Stratford and elsewhere, but always thought they're a little bit too pantomime-like. His sets for the Tempest were rather like a pantomime. Well, now he's designing a pantomime, and it's perfect. <laughs> yes, I think it's perfect. It's a pantomime that's never been seen before. I don't know whether it's a pantomime that will please the children. But it seems to me a sort of top-notch, second-rate edition of almost everything that we value. Very good, but not absolutely first-class dancing. 
very good, but not absolutely scholarly scenery, and fairly good music, appropriate music, not robust. But I, I'm afraid for me it was ruined by the principals, who seemed to me just television personalities transferred to the theatre and quite incapable of holding their own. Roger Mandel. Well, maybe the principal's for a second is to say that surely musically, although this was a vintage Cole Porter or whatever word you like to use, it did, the fact that he composed and saw the thing as a whole, did make it musically all of one piece. It is continuity in music. Therefore, I thought it was satisfactory, though never brilliant Cole Porter. Yes, the pity of it is, of course, when you say he composed it, in point of fact, the orchestrations were done by, as so often happens in musicals, by other hands, which gives the whole thing a kind of anonymity, which is very trying. But it wasn't a, a patchwork of pop tunes, which uh, the normal pantomime usually But don't, don't you want a patchwork to a certain extent? I long for a good old chorus song, like I do like a nice mince pie. Yes, or indeed, do kippers swim folded or flat. I thought Jack Lambert was terribly ungracious, especially at Christmas time, to the principal boy of yesteryear. Uh, he called her a whacking great woman in pipes. What a horrible thing to say. She was a handsome contralto who slapped her thigh, and it was a thigh worth snapping. I mean, those really were the days, and I missed, too, as both Pamela Hansford Thompson did, the, the, the variety one used to get in pantomime. This was all spectacle, whereas the pantomime one looks forward to used to switch from spectacle to sentiment to magic to knockabout, and then to these wonderful choruses that you all joined in. But it wasn't all spectacle. What an extraordinary thing to say. We had at least two love duets. We had contortionists, tumblers, ballet dancers, We'll call that spectacle, if you like. I see Philip Hervalis is regretting the change, but this is a change, as I began by saying, the pantomime is, I think, changing. I think I'm deeply regretting the people who knew how to do it. I mean, you may not have liked the principal boy as such, but at any rate, at the moment, when Aladdin is sealed into a cave, she would have had the, every child and half the adults in the house with their hearts in their mouths, thinking, this is terrible, he's shot in there. And extraordinary thing is that with Helpman in control, it's extraordinary that we don't get more fun out of it, because he himself is the most wonderfully funny mine as a dancer. I don't you think Shirley Rommel China was extremely funny as Widow Twanky? Well, I do, yeah. I think you... uh, yes, I think he was funny in the sense of a, of a stage comedian, but not a musical comedian. The attacks got to be quicker. The attacks got to be more robust. I thought he lost the just lost point of that attack copper thing. Oh, the kids round well, us were drowning our ears with noise. Oh, well, yes, the kids were drowning our ears with noise, but he wasn't quick enough on his cue. He wasn't trying to make the musical all effect. Yes, but he wasn't, he wasn't doing this on his own. I mean, you put a tap and you put a copper and they both go off at intervals and you put Dante running the show and everybody will roar with laughter. It wasn't he that was doing it. Sure. And the thing runs on prettiness and splendid ideas. There's a lovely idea, I don't know whether you mentioned, which was that we all light up matches to make stars in the sky with hope... charming castles from Grad. Which is a lovely idea. Yes, I hope somebody would, in fact, mention that, <laughs> because here, yeah, it seemed to me, with uh, audience participation at its best, the children were all shouting copper tap, copper tap, and so on. May I ask, when we were asked on the stroke of eight to strike a match or a cigarette lighter, how many of you round this table actually struck one? I did. I did. I did. I couldn't have got one. But could Mr. Monkhouse have got us to sing a chorus song? Which is quite I do hope not. I must say, I think striking match is infinitely preferable to singing chorus songs. Well, that is part of the old traditional pantomime, is it not? And I think the pantomime tradition is changing and should change. It is changing not at all for the worst. Good. I've been there to end up. 
Now we turn to the radio program called Today, broadcast in the Home Service on... On the 22nd of December 1980, here's Clement Freud doing a thoroughly uncomprehensive reflection on the School of St Trinians. Clement Freud presents Thoroughly Uncomprehensive, a reflection on the School of St Trinians from the cartoons by Ronald Searle. These awful St. Trinian schoolgirls that I do. I mean, they're quite fun while they last, but I know perfectly well, I'm, I, can, I can see the day when they're going to pass by as another idea which was good while it lasted and then gradually faded out. That was a brave and unusual statement. By and large, when someone achieves a success in something, no matter what, he cashes in on it which is why comedians tell the same jokes, writers write the same books, singers sing the same songs. Even in some cases, sons take up songs when their fathers die. Lyricists, when they hit a golden patch, keep at it, which is why we always forget whether this or that comes from Oklahoma, South Pacific, Annie Get Your Gun, Pell Joey, or maybe the same song was in all of them. The artist who creates, succeeds, exploits, and then puts up the shutters is a rare breed. And as often as not, when they say, uh, this is my last Biggles book, or my last painting of Matt Stigman, or my last perforated sculpture, artistic their promises as realistically as heavyweight boxers abide by their declarations to retire. Ronsell was a sensitive, gifted artist when he drew a cartoon of a beastly schoolgirl in 1941. He continued the work when he was released from being a prisoner of war of the Japanese in 1945, went on doing St. Trinian's cartoons until 1952, when he decided, as you've heard, that enough was enough and returned to Sierra's art. Oddly enough, the most... Trinian-esque person I know is a man, the peripatetic football manager Tommy Doherty, who speaks straight out of cell, as it were. Tommy Doherty, whose motto is, do unto others and run like hell. And Tommy Doherty, who once said to me, a friend in need is a pain in the arse. Conan Doyle, when he disposed of Sherlock Holmes, did at least have the right and back falls from which it was hard to clamber back. And for all Searle's efforts, Centrinians does live on. Centrinians has gone. Encouraged by the success of recent atomic explosions in the Pacific, the school nuclear fission experts threw themselves into their experiments with renewed enthusiasm and with the help, thanks to certain old girls, of some newly acquired top-secret information, achieved their object at midnight last night. The remains of the school are still smouldering. By some miracle, the statue of our patron saint, scorched but uncracked, still stands where once the ripple of girlish laughter could be heard on a clear, frosty morning. The fate of the teaching staff is unknown. Nay, will never be known. And few young ladies are believed to have survived. 
this blow from which Centrinians cannot recover, the building fund has been embezzled anyway, may bring a sigh of relief to many a parent and a quiet tear from true lovers of healthy girlhood. Let it suffice for us to say, before we draw a veil over the last broken limb, we are proud that the name of Centrinians has echoed through this land. So Centrinians, recognized with a slight shudder by the Board of Education and immensely appreciated by the rest of us, has gone. It's gone because the age which considered a revolt against authority as a giggle is behind us. School fiction hasn't stopped. School Friend and Bunty and all the other school magazines go on from success to success. If we're to look at a Centrinians of the future. I suppose the best bit would be a bunty type of school where clear-eyed, lissomathetic prefects call the grubby, acneed little fourth former a filthy sneak. And that will sell 6,500 copies, which is roughly what the terror of Centrinians sold in hardback, against the 100,000 sales of the bunties of the 1990s in which a nuclear scientist introduces lethal propane gas into Thursday's fish pie. But then with all those factual stories for girls, who will want to read fiction? Bringing us towards a, a rather serene uh, end for this first part of the Christmas Kaleidopod are some cows from Canterbury from the 20th of December 1960 from Southern TV, Cowles from Canterbury. of you for peaceful peaceful rest of christmas eve enjoy our special collider pod tomorrow on christmas day and our next collider pod returns on new year's eve to wrap up the year good night <laughs>